Hello and welcome to Abemus Papam, episode 255, St. Pius X. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Abemus Papam. So, it's just a really nice thing at the very beginning of this. We have another saint. Uh, this is the first saint pope in a while. And it's really a great thing to get to say at the beginning of an episode. And get used to that. There are more coming. Today's pope was born to humble parents outside of Treviso in northern Italy on June 2nd, 1835. His name at birth was Giuseppe Melchiore Sarto. And he was the second of 10 children. He received a standard elementary education and then attended the minor seminary of the Diocese of Treviso. And then in 1850, he began his studies in the major seminary in Padua. In 1852, when his youngest sibling was born, the 10th, his father died. And for a modest family whose mother couldn't work because she had just given birth, this was a huge deal. And most of his family wanted Giuseppe to come home from the seminary to work and take care of his family to give up this vocation. But he was convinced that it was his vocation, that God called him to become a priest. And so he remained in seminary and continued his studies. As a seminarian, he loved sacred music and the studying of languages. He was good-natured, pious, and intelligent. And on September 18, 1858, he was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Treviso. He was sent to be the local priest for a tiny village called Tombolo, today about an hour outside of Venice by car. The town was minuscule. The assignment was not glamorous, but Father Sarto threw himself into it, focusing on catechizing the people and making sure that the liturgy was beautiful. After eight years as a priest of this small town, he was moved to be the pastor of Salzano, a slightly larger parish, and his pastoral objectives were the same. He was recognized as being an exemplary parish priest. He showed tremendous love for the poor and oftentimes expended his own resources for the care of the sick. After about seven years in 1875, he was named the chancellor of the Diocese of Treviso and had to move to the cathedral, where he was also given jobs to serve as the spiritual director in the seminary and as a religious teacher in the local high school. He was well-liked, he was adept as a mediator and an administrator. And so it made sense that in 1884, he was chosen to be the Bishop of Mantua, which everyone considered to be a tough job. He was ordained to the Episcopate on November 10th, 1884. And there's a wonderful little story that when he visited home for the first time after his Episcopal consecration, they showed his mom his new bishop's ring, and she pointed to it and then pointed to her own saying, you wouldn't have that ring if I didn't have this one. Now, it's been a pattern of recent popes that one of their first objectives in becoming a bishop is the formation of the clergy, and Bishop Sarto was no exception. He himself taught moral and dogmatic theology at his local seminary and particularly promoted the teaching of St. Thomas Aquinas, just as Pope Leo XIII was doing at the same time. He even went so far as to buy copies of the Summa for seminarians who were too poor to afford it. This was particularly important for Mantua because before the bishop's time, the clergy of Mantua had been known to be verging on the heretical. And if, if not heretical, they were certainly more sympathetic to the radical and more anti-clerical strains in Italian political thought at the time. So the bishop's first task when arriving was to call a diocesan synod and have the clergy turn their attention to the pastoral over the political and to be formed by good theology and good practices of piety. The bishop himself was often in the confessional, he was in the parishes, and he promoted acts of charity and Eucharistic devotion throughout his diocese. His success in Mantua prompted a further recognition in Rome, when in June of 1893, Pope Leo XIII named him first a cardinal, and then the Patriarch of Venice. In Venice, as a more prominent see, he had more political issues, but his pastoral priorities remained the same, catechesis, beautiful liturgy, and devotion to the Blessed Sacrament, and formation of the clergy. His motto as a bishop was restore all things in Christ, and that is what he did. 
Pope Leo XIII died in 1903 after 25 years as Pope, and the conclave looked to elect as his successor his Cardinal Secretary of State, Cardinal Rampolla. There was a sizable contingent who was looking for someone more pastoral, and Cardinal Sarto was their man, but the momentum was with Cardinal Rampolla. That is, until just before he was about to be elected, the Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow told the conclave that he had been vetoed by the Austrian emperor. His candidacy collapsed, and Cardinal Sarto was elected on August 4th, 1903. The whole time he had told everyone he did not want to be elected, but when the final ballot came, he accepted the decision of the cardinals and took the name Pius X. Now, one of his first acts as Pope was to end the tradition of giving vetoes in papal elections to various European states. The new Pope's agenda was demonstrated in his pastoral experience to restore all things in Christ. He wanted a reform of the church, but one which was rooted in Christ completely. The start of that reform was the reform of canon law and its official codification. Canon law had been up to this time a hodgepodge of various texts and decrees and papal proclamations spanning centuries, and it was hard to get a grasp on. There was no one central code where all the laws were in one place. Pope Pius X, shortly after his election, turned to a certain Monsignor Gaspari, a noted canonist and scholar, and he asked his opinion, how long would it take to codify all of canon law in one document? Gaspari estimated that it would take around 25 years, and the Pope said, in effect, well, you better get started then. The Pope appointed Gaspari a cardinal in 1907. His work would continue long after the end of Pope Pius's pontificate. Another early cardinal appointed by the Pope was his Secretary of State Cardinal Rafael Mary Duval. Cardinal Mary Duval is a fascinating character. He was the son of a Spanish diplomat and born in England, where his father was serving in the diplomatic corps. He entered the seminary and studied in Belgium and then in Rome at the Academia and the Gregorian universities. He was famously appointed a Monsignor while still a seminarian because he was selected before being ordained to represent the Holy See at the coronation of Queen Victoria, and he needed a suitable rank. So this now skilled diplomat would become the dominant force of the Secretary of State's office. And you know him even if you don't realize it because he wrote the famous Litany of Humility, which is pretty popular these days and definitely worth praying. The new Pope's reform campaign followed his previous reforms in his previous diocese, formation of the clergy, catechesis, beauty of the liturgy, and Eucharistic piety. To form the clergy, he organized a visitation of all the seminaries of Italy, and where small local seminaries were not able to give proper formation, he organized regional seminaries so that the clergy in small dioceses weren't subpar. He likewise created a compendium of Christian doctrine, which is kind of a proto-catechism, which would help with catechesis across the church. He's most famous, perhaps, for his spreading of Eucharistic piety. He was a huge supporter of the fairly new International Eucharistic Congress movement, and he hosted one in 1905 in Rome. He encouraged Eucharistic devotion across the church and especially frequent communion for the faithful. And in 1911, he published Quam Singulari, which encouraged bishops to lower the age for first communion to closer to the age of reason rather than around the eighth grade. So the reason you received first communion in second grade, if that's when you did, was because of Pope Pius X. Finally, he loved the liturgy, and he especially wanted to encourage participation of the faithful in singing the Mass. He published a document called Trale Solicitudini, a mode proprio on the sacred liturgy at the very beginning of his papacy, and in it he called for the full active participation of the faithful in Mass. And as a part of that, he wanted to revive Gregorian chant as the most ancient patrimony of Christian worship music. Too often, high masses had become performances with massive operatic and orchestral music pieces, which were impossible for the people to sing with or to follow along to. Chant was foundational to the mass. It was closer to the people. It was easier to sing, and it needed to be revived. 
Now, politically, Pope Pius rem, uh, remained along the same lines as his predecessor, Pope Pius IX, in that he deplored the modernist political environment that had captivated Europe and left the Pope as a prisoner in the Vatican. He was not on good relations with the Italian state, and he published several documents condemning modernist political teaching, the most famous being Pascendi Dominici Gregis. In Pascendi, he lays out the modernist arguments for the separation of church and state and the relegation of the church to a purely spiritual realm, which he rejects. The spiritual realm has something to say and some authority in the temporal realm, and the church should work through study, evangelization, and if need be, censorship in order to assert her rightful place. The Pope thus strengthened some of the censorship powers of the Index of Forbidden Books and the Holy Office, and he tended to err on the side of censoring rather than being open. In addition, every cleric and religious teacher would be required to take an oath against modernism. The oath affirmed that the teacher would uphold wholeheartedly the doctrines of the church and that the candidate, quote, would firmly hold then and shall hold to my dying breath the belief of the fathers in the charism of truth, which certainly is, was, and always will be in the succession of the episcopacy from the apostles. The purpose of this is then not that dogma may be tailored according to what seems better and more suited to the culture of each age, rather that the absolute and immutable truth preached by the apostles from the beginning may never be believed to be different, may never be understood in any other way. Now, this firm kind of catechetical holding of the truth colored the Pope's other diplomatic ventures, the most important being in France, where if you remember from last week, the French Republic was about to pass a law completely separating church and state. In 1905, the separation was confirmed and the Vatican severed diplomatic relations with France, the eldest daughter of the church, which is a sad moment. Similar split happened with Portugal, and then most importantly with Mexico in 1911. There in Mexico, a radical anti-clerical government had come to power, which led to numerous martyrdoms of priests and faithful Catholics throughout the country. Thankfully, there was a decent relationship between the Pope and the Austrian Emperor Franz Josef, but tensions were starting to rise, and the Pope worked a diplomatic relationship with Serbia, which allowed Catholic freedom of worship. And because of that, tensions increased a little bit between the Pope and Austria, who didn't really like Serbia. And that fundamental disagreement between Austria and Serbia exploded into full conflict in June of 1914, when a Serbian nationalist, Gavirolo Princip, assassinated the Archduke of Austria, Franz Ferdinand, in Sarajevo. The Archduke had missed an assassination attempt earlier in the day, and Princip had thought he had failed. But then the Archduke's car happened to take a wrong turn, and Princip happened to be standing right there and killed him. Austria gave an ultimatum to Serbia in July, which kicked off a string of ultimatums and threats all across Europe, back down or else war. Serbia was allied with Russia and Austria with Germany and France with Russia and England with France, and it was all looking like everything was about to fall apart. And so during the midst of that summer of 1914, in August, on August 2nd, Pope Pius pleaded for peace, and I'll quote his text in full since it's pretty short. The Pope implores, while nearly all Europe is being driven into the torturous ways of most destructive war, he who has reflected a little upon what dangers, what massacres, what result there would be would assuredly perceive himself overwhelmed with sorrow and trembling. We ourselves also cannot but be most grievously affected, cannot but be tormented with the most bitter mourning in spirit, because we are solicitous for the salvation and also the life of so many citizens, of so many peoples. In so great a disturbance of all affairs and at a critical moment, we clearly perceive and understand that paternal charity demands this from us, that the apostolic ministry demands this, that we more vehemently direct the spirits of all Christ's faithful to the place whence help comes to Christ. We say that the Prince of Peace, the most powerful mediator of God of man, we therefore exhort all, that all approach the throne of grace and of mercy, as many Catholics as there are throughout the whole world, 
And in the first place, men from the clergy, whose duty, moreover, it will be at the command of bishops to carry out public supplications in every single parish, the merciful God, exhausted, as it were, by the prayers of the pious, may take away the destructive flames of war, the sooner the better, and that beneficent, he may grant to those who preside over civil affairs to think thoughts of peace and not of affliction. It would be the Pope's last public address. His health had already been bad, and the stress of war made it worse. On August 4th, the Germans crossed the border into Belgium as a preemptive move against France, and World War I began. And Pope Pius X died just two weeks later, on August 20th, 1914. He was beatified on June 3rd, 1951, and canonized on May 29th, 1954, and he was buried in St. Peter's Basilica. Now, there's a story that when he left Venice for the conclave to be elected pope, he said, either alive or dead, I will return to Venice. Since alive, he never did return to Venice. When St. John Twenty-Third was pope, himself a former patriarch of Venice, he brought St. Pius X's body back to Venice for veneration for a time. But eventually his final resting place would be St. Peter's Basilica. The world unfortunately went to war, not heeding the pope's pleas. That war will have to be the purview of Pope St. Pius X's successor, Pope Benedict XV, and we will talk about him next week. Thank you for listening to Abemus Papam. You can find the rest of the Catholic Link podcast at catholiclink.org or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you. <laughs>